Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must be <clears throat> must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Thanks be to God for his word. Well, thank you uh, very much for having us back and inviting me to share with you from um, this amazing and lovely letter. Can I say how lovely it is to see so many um, old and valued uh, brothers and sisters in Christ? It is a great joy, isn't it, to know that we are part of a global church family and nothing reminds us of that more when we see people we haven't seen for a few years and we see them going strong and we're encouraged by it. Thank you. Um, very much indeed. I must offer my apologies for our absence. We were due to preach about a month ago, and um, uh, we, after two years, avoiding it for two years, we finally were struck down by COVID, and um, I was thinking of you all as I was lazing away in bed. Um, so apologies for that. But we are back, praise the Lord, it was not more serious. Now, why don't I just start with a prayer, if that's all right, and then we'll get cracking in God's word. Father, you are so kind to us, you speak to us in your word, um, truths that we need to hear. Truths that are not comfortable for us as we um, live in today's culture, but truths that we need to hear. And we ask, Father, that you would um, speak into all of our hearts, mine included, today, that you would um, change us through your word, make us more like your wonderful son, and help us to hear you speak now. Amen. Well, before us today, we have a really lovely passage from um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We had that amazing uh, song, didn't we, um, performed by Children's Church uh, by Awesome Cutlery. Um, I think the name is ridiculous, Awesome Cutlery, but they are awesome. That song was actually awesome. It was a brilliant overview of Paul's letter to the Ephesians and the wonderful truths within it. It is a book of two halves, isn't it? The first half, you know this, you've heard, well, those of you who are regular with this, 
it is a book of two halves. The first half, these amazing truths about God's gift to his people. The totally unmerited kindness of his love to us. You can go pretty much anywhere in the book and come across wonderful truths. Um, I'm going to take us back to chapter 2, um, just because I quite fancy it. Uh, let's look at chapter 2. We're going to look at the first few verses of it. Um, they are great truths, good for us to be reminded of as we think about God's gospel. Paul says this, As for you, you Christians in Ephesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. What were we like without Christ? Well, Paul reminds us that we were spiritually dead. We followed the ways of the world and the devil. We lived lives where we basically did what we wanted. We gratified our own pleasures, our own desires and cravings. And we deserve God's rightful judgment for our rejection of him. If you want a sign of how amazing the gospel is, you don't have to look much further than seeing what we were like when he reached out to us and saved us. What a picture of his kindness. Well, we're in the second half of Ephesians, aren't we? And the second half of Ephesians is basically saying, take all these truths, this amazing gospel, what difference does it make in our lives? And we're going to look at some very particular bits of that. Um, We're going to look at how we live these transformed lives. Look with me at chapter 5, let's go back to that, begin to get into today's text, which Ruth read so beautifully, thank you Ruth, for that. 5 verse 1, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Or he says at the end of our passage in verse 15, be very careful then how you live. This is about our daily lives, those of us who are Christians. This is about what our lives should be like, what they should be shaped by, why they should be shaped that way. And I'm going to give you a sneak preview. Well, for the first uh, four verses, we're going to think about how our transformed lives should look. Um, We're going to think about the place of sex in our lives and our senses of humour. We're going to move on in verses 5 to 7. We're going to think about the first part of the the why we need to follow God's example as we look at the great reality that awaits. Um, And then we're going to look at verses 8 to 14 and think about the importance of following Jesus' example. Why is it important? What effect does it have on us, on those around us? And if we have time, we'll try and sneak a peek at verses 15 to 17, where Paul rounds up this um, larger section with a life worthy, you know, where he's asking us to live a life worthy of our callings. Now, brilliantly, I can't see the clock. Okay? There's a flag in the way, Ukrainian flag. Very, very exciting. I think it's Ukrainian flag. It's hard to tell. Um, uh, the good news is, therefore, I have no idea how long I'm going to speak for. So good luck. Um, okay let's come back to the passage we're going to look at verses 1 to 4 verses 1 to 4 imitate Christ in sacrificial love living holy lives and speaking holy words imitate Christ in sacrificial love living holy lives and speaking holy words today's passage starts with a bold challenge and it's very easy for us to gloss over 
Paul says this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are to act as the dearly loved children of God that we are. It's often true, isn't it, that there are family resemblances. Um, Not always, of course. Sometimes families are made of all sorts of different parts and different people, and people change. Um, Genetics can be very weird, but it's not unusual. Physical illnesses can come. I remember learning about sickle cell anemia at school. Sickle cell anemia is more likely in the children of those who had sickle cell anemia. Seems obvious. The same is true for asthma. Same is true for diabetes. But so too are other more intangible things. Well, you know, they can be nurtured, can't they? Accents, dialects, patterns of speech. Subjects that people like at school can often echo the favourites of their parents. Musicians more often have musically gifted children. People who are quite fit and athletic and outgoing, well, their children are often fit and athletic and outgoing, a bit sporty. Much of these are choices that people make, that the children make. So my wife and I are mathematicians. We like maths. Our daughter turned out to be quite good at it, but she fought against it every step of the way and eventually ended up doing an A-level, a poor thing. Um, In spite of her efforts, she had to choose it to pursue it. Well, these these sort of family or these social echoes um, that we take on from those around us and those with which we identify, well, that's kind of our normal expectation, isn't it? Well, here Paul is saying that since we have been adopted by God into his family, our lives should begin to echo with his character. Our lives need to march in time with the beat of his drum. Well, um, you hear a lot, don't you, about prisons and looking at different, uh, the world through different prisons and different ways of looking at it. Paul is here encouraging us to consider our lives through the prism of what it means to be in God's family. We, we're not slaves who are forced to comply. We're not those who are doing this unwillingly dragged here. We have chosen Christ as our Lord and he has made us part of his family. We are sons and daughters of him. And therefore, we want to be so in tune with him, says Paul, that we reflect his likeness. And of course, what do we mean by likeness? We mean, of course, the likeness of our eldest brother, Jesus. And Paul points us to that great example of um, Jesus' character, of course, his loving self-sacrifice on the cross. Now, in our church tradition, we rightly make much of the fact that what Jesus did on that cross was unique. He could do it. We could not. We could not save ourselves. Only he could save us. And it is right for us to make that point. But there is also a way in which what Jesus did there is an example for us to follow. And it's really easy for us to forget that second bit. But it sits there as a picture of the lengths to which Christ was willing to go and a guideline for us and the lengths we should be willing to go for him and those around us. Now, um, what we're going to be unpacking today 
is that lived out? Okay, it is putting Christ first. It is um, taking our wants and desires and being willing to put them aside just as he did. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prayed before his death and he said, not as I will, but as you will. And that's the context for us to look at these thorny areas for today's world of verses 3 and 4. That's the context as we think about self-sacrifice that we are called to, having been saved by him against, if you like, the self-indulgence of our age. Going from the love that he showed to the perversion of it, that is lust, that we have in today's world. I don't mean to say that this half of the room is okay and that one's not. Just to be clear, that's just my arm flying around, strangely. Um, Right, look at verse 3 and 4 with me. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Now, can I just say that this issue of sexuality was not a small thing at the time of um, the early church. Um, some of you will know the story or the stories in the book of Acts. You remember that Paul was very worried about the Jewish church and the Gentiles being united and making sure that they were all working together. So he goes off to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish church leaders and they send back a letter saying, great, you're in too. Here's some things we want you to think about. Can you remember what he said they had to think about? Acts 15, for those who can remember or can't remember. And he said this, and they said this when writing to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. It seemed good to us, the Holy Spirit, to not burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Sexual immorality was a big thing in the world of Jesus' day. In the Greek world, it was huge. We'll think a bit more about that later on. What do we mean by sexual immorality? Well, um, the Greek word is pornea, and um, that, together with what Paul says here, is impurity. Um, Well, that covers pretty much every kind of sexual sin. In other words, all sexual intercourse outside of God-ordained loving marriage. Indeed, here we have the very word from which we get our modern-day word of pornography. To them, Paul adds greed, or what used to be known as covetousness. As the tenth commandment, you remember the tenth commandment? It's um, a four, here we have that that talked about, didn't it? That your neighbour's coveting your neighbour's wife was one of the things, the way it was phrased. A form of sexual sin where one covets somebody else's body for selfish gratification. So um, strongly does uh, Paul see these things as being out of step with the family likeness? Well, Paul says effectively it must not even be hinted at among us. Now, in 21st century, that's quite something, isn't it? You know, we have Love Island splashed across the TV as one of the big shows of our age, you know, where um, you know, it seems that sex has to be completely emotion-free and unconnected, unconnect- con- but uh, desperately important to have lots of it. 
And this is sort of held out as marvellous, multi-generational viewing. Watch it with your family and chat about it afterwards. Won't that be lovely? Or the dating shows today, where rather than just having a dating show, you have it without any clothes on. Because obviously the most important thing is what people look like naked. And, and it is um, striking, isn't it, actually, that people look at us as Christians and say, we've outgrown, we society today has outgrown your values. Okay? Um, they think as if the Bible was written in a context of Victorian England. But for all the promiscuity of today's culture, we have little different, really, from the culture of the day in Ephesus when this letter was written. Immorality was rife in Asia. Men were free to have sex with slaves and with prostitutes without it even being considered adultery. It didn't count. And since the Greek goddess Artemis um, was regarded as a fertility goddess, Sexual orgies were, were kind of regularly associated with her worship. That's the social culture that this letter was written into. They were just as promiscuous as we are today, if not more so. And that is the context for this call for purity, sexual purity. Um, the call to have um, nothing to do with sex outside of marriage. Well, it's always been a high and a holy standard. To demand. It's true then, and it's true for us today. I suspect the majority of myself, have, uh, the majority of us, and I include myself, I should say, um, have been much less than perfect in this regard, whether it's in thought, word, or deed. I don't need to quote statistics, do I, of those who proclaim themselves as Christian but, but cheated on their spouses, or or those in Christian ministry who find themselves with an addiction to pornography or worse. As with all matters of sexual temptation, there will be those amongst us who have made um, terrible mistakes in this area. And there will be those amongst us who have been terribly hurt um, as well. And those of us who have hurt others too. This is a, a hard area for us today. And, and can I just say that if you're troubled by this and thoughts that are raised by this, I, I think I'd encourage you to speak to someone. And it might not be a bad place to start with one of the elders here. You're welcome to come and talk to me afterwards. Um, but it is good to start those conversations if this is an area that is causing you great grief. Well, in addition to sexual sins, verse 4 goes on, describe a type of humour that the generation before us might have, called, might have called vulgar. Paul talks about obscenity, which means filthy language. In our family, we call it the sort of thing that you'd be embarrassed to say to a grandparent's face. Foolish talk, coarse joking, there are allusions to a sense of humour that, that is stuck in that same sense of um, sexual immorality that we might call crude. The sort of thing that used to be excused as, as locker room banter um, or where somebody in a gossip circle is being demeaning to their, their spouse when talking to their friends. It, it, it's objectifying people as if they were toys or needed a score. All these things are suggestive of minds far too focused on sex to be good for us. Paul simply says these things have no 
place among us. They are unfitting for us as Christians. Now, our contemporary uh, post-Christian age isn't very forgiving, is it? We, we, we were talking about this at lunch, actually. And it's no surprise when people don't have a good perspective uh, on sin, but now you know, a bad choice of joke can see your job at risk or um, being the victim of cancel culture. Well, perhaps senses of humour redeemed from vulgarity might stand us in good stead in a new hyper-judgmental age. Thought? No, instead Paul says he wants to see thanksgiving. A strong contrast. The worldly attitude of towards sex of being snide, um, you know, laughing at it. Well, there's that with its self-gratification. Compare that to the Christian attitude where sex is held in high esteem. It's a play in the place where God has designed it to fit. Christians have a bad reputation for being negative towards sex. But the reason why we should dislike and avoid vulgarity is not because we're ashamed of sex or frightened of sex. Quite the opposite. We need to be thankful for sex. We need to see it as God's good gift and we don't want it to see it cheapened. Gratitude rather than denigration, degradation. Celebration of sex rather than cheap laughs. Perhaps some of us, many of us, need a reset at times in this area. Well, let's move on, shall we, to look at some of the why we need to be very careful how we live. Five to seven. And in verse five to seven, we're looking at for God's wrath is all too real. For God's wrath is all too real. Verse five, let me pick up. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. Now the first reason that Paul gives for steering clear of sexual immorality being improper is that these truly are those things which provoke God's wrath. And they deserve God's punishment. Well, this feels like a really, quite a strong statement here, doesn't it? It feels like a warning to these Christians in Ephesus. But haven't we been forgiven by God? And what happens when I lapse? Is there any forgiveness? Well, it's easy to tie ourselves in knots on this, isn't it? Christian life is hard as we try to please God. And it's easy to give up. Well, I want to make, first of all, I want to make really clear that the main thing in view here is not Christians failing, but it's rather, it is those who have not accepted the gospel for themselves. Now, the keys to seeing this is verse 6, and there's a phrase here that the NIV calls those who are disobedient. Okay? Now, literally, the Greek phrase translated here meant sons of disobedience, and it's a phrase Paul used in chapter 2, verse 2, the bit that we read earlier, to describe those who are still spiritually dead in their transgressions and sins, those who have not yet come under the forgiving sound of the gospel. Paul here is making a general point 
These practices that he is saying have no place among us, they are the sort of thing that deserves God's wrath. He wants us to understand the result of them. But he also has that sense of a warning in this. And we need to strike a careful balance. And may I suggest that perhaps one of the things that's difficult when we look at this is we tend to be very good at hearing some bits of God's word and not others. So some of us are really good at hearing God forgives everything and they then go, therefore it doesn't matter. Some are really good at thinking God is going to judge what I've done. How can he ever forgive me? And we're very bad at holding these two things in tensions. And of course, what's even worse is when you're, when you're kind of talking about these sorts of things, preaching on them or discussing them amongst ourselves, we tend to hear the bit that we don't need to hear rather than the bit that we do need to hear. Good. So that's thoroughly confused everyone. <laughs> Excellent. For those who are prone to think they are never, can never be good enough to God, what do we have to remember? We have committed our lives to him. He is faithful and true. He has raised us from spiritual death, knowing full well how evil we are. What did we read in Psalm verse 130 earlier? It was great, wasn't it? Verse 3 said this. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. No, those of us who fall, and we all do, in this area or others, but afterwards we repent in shame and humility. Well, there is always the glorious forgiveness of Jesus available. To think that we are somehow unforgivable or that God could never take us back, well, that's, that's the devil's lies at work in us, isn't it? That's not God's truth. But there's also those of us who are prone to make light of our sins, aren't there? In our heart of hearts, we don't really think what we have done is particularly serious or maybe that God cares very much. And for those of us who are like that, and that's probably where I'm more likely to, to fool myself, we need to feel the genuine and right anger of God against such sins. What does Paul want us to remember if you're tempted to flirt with somebody in a way that doesn't fit with our identity as God's children, or to click on that website. We need to remember that those, um, for those for whom lust has become this idolatrous obsession, well, they will have no share in the perfect kingdom of God. These are things that God rightly will judge. To indulge such yearnings is a madness, isn't it? given what we are and what we were. Well, we need to hold tightly to both truths, don't we? And keep reminding ourselves and each other of them. And keep reminding each other and ourselves of the ones that we need to hear. Some of us need to remember the assurance. Some of us need to remember God's rightful wrath on sin. Of course, Paul also warns, let no one deceive you. And, and I think we all know that there are plenty who will tell you otherwise than these things. Plenty will write on the web, they'll post passionate speeches, clips on social media, um, they'll teach in our children's PSHEE lessons. 
They will mock godly attitudes to sex. They will call them old-fashioned. They may even label them as dangerous or worse. They may well quote academic studies. Um, They may well say that porn is a good way to explore or peddle asinine comments like, you have to sleep together before marriage to know if you're sexually compatible. Of these, Paul said, let no one deceive you. We would do well to listen more carefully to our creator than the created. And then verse 7 finishes off with a warning not to be partners with them. Now, this is again one of those slightly tricky verses. Then you always find that in these passages where there's great death, there is also great capacity for confusion. This is one of those little verses. Great capacity for confusion, but a very helpful warning. Uh, Paul is not here prohibiting all contact or association with people who um, are with such people. Otherwise, how could you ever bring the good news to them? Um, if you want to think further about this, there's a really helpful corrective to this in 1 Corinthians 5 on this. Um, no, the point is here to say that we should not share in their practices. We shouldn't join in. Let's move on. Verses 8 to 14. For we have become an infectious light in the Lord. We have become an infectious light in the Lord. Verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes the light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul um, now moves on to contrast our our pre-Christian selves with our now-Christian selves, using the familiar metaphor of light and dark. Jesus described it, and he said in John's Gospel, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's a very familiar Christian um, imagery of this light against the darkness. But here, Paul contrasts in all sorts of ways. He talks about the fruitfulness of living as children of the light. Fruit meaning what we do and what we say and what we think. Goodness, righteousness and truth. And the fruitlessness of our pre-Christian lives lived in darkness. But the most striking thing here is that Paul doesn't say that we are in the light, but that we are light in the Lord. In coming to Christ, a radical transformation has taken place. We are now light ourselves. One of those amazing, delightful benefits of having uh, children is you get those sort of science lessons of your youth revisited. And um, uh, we've been looking at some light in the not-too-distant past with them, and we learned all sorts of things about the sun and the moon. The sun emits light, the moon reflects light. Um, In Christ, with the spirit living within us, we find that we have become light emitters in God's strength and power. Paul wants us to know two things about the light of the gospel. It exposes like a searchlight, but it wonderfully, it also affects change too. Now, 
The Greek word that is translated as exposed here is mostly meant, for those who are experts in Greek, which I'm certainly not, by living out rather than direct accusation. So this is not wagging our fingers in the, in the faces of people and saying, you should not live that way. This is not us being public morality police and correcting those around us. This is us living godly lives and our lives act to expose the fruitlessness of those around us. Try being the non-gossip in your group or in the office or wherever and, and see people suddenly notice their own gossiping. Not, not by criticising them, but by simply being a better example on offer. Or, or the teenager not drunkenly going too far at a party when all around them are losing their heads. I, I remember going on a um, stag weekend for a non-Christian friend where one of... Um, the guy who was getting married, his, his slightly drunken friends was boorishly proclaiming that horrible old slogan, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You've probably heard it. And that his girlfriend didn't need to know. I thought for a minute and then just shared how much I, I was looking forward to going home to my wife, to Rachel, looking her in the eyes and being able to share that there was nothing that needed to be hidden from her. Sometimes people just need a different example. We we do need to be a bit careful, again, in this passage. There are some quite um, strong words, you know, particularly Paul's words, that it's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. I think I'm sad to say that I know a number in the past who've experienced abuse um, at the hands of others. And what, what really brings to mind these great tragedies of churches, whether they were Catholic, whether they were Anglican, whether they were independent, from all sorts of different parts of the church, where abuses happened and perpetrators were quietly shuffled off to repeat their evil elsewhere. Well, the leaders of these churches, they were so focused on protecting the reputation of the church, not exposing the shame, that they missed the damage that was then done. And we have seen, haven't we, thousands of victims in churches up and down the land, around the world, where people fell victim to this policy of hiding what was going on. Part of me wonders how much less harm would have been done if the church had been wise enough to expose the misdeeds of the light, as Paul says here, misdeeds to the light rather, owning the shame, knowing that there is real shame. Even more than exposing the fruitlessness of sin, these verses point more gloriously, don't they, at the saving change brought by light. As the things illuminated themselves um, become light, such lights don't only expose what is going on in the darkness, they can also help people see their way. Surely this is what is being suggested in what was probably an early hymn, that end, that verse uh, uh, 14, um, we think it's borrowed heavily from Isaiah, or the commentators think it's borrowed heavily from Isaiah. Um, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, this might be us leading a righteous life, leading others to reform their behaviour, or even, God willing, bringing them to understand and accept the gospel for themselves. Uh, I'm sure Rachel, my wife, is not the only one whose testimony includes 
being struck by an example of a, of a Christian that caused her to listen to the gospel more carefully. It may be taking opportunities to share that glorious gospel ourselves with those won over by our attitudes and lives. One commentator observed that it is possible, after all, it happened to each of us, for light to turn the thing it shines upon into light. Well, verses 15, 17, I think really are Paul's bringing, Paul bringing this bigger section to a conclusion where he seems to be very careful then how you live. So we've got a great challenge at the end to be very, very careful how we live, not to fall into a way of life. Take care over it. Be careful. Care about it. Being wise rather than foolish. Seeking to emulate our Lord in thought, word and deed, rather than engaging in the very things that most grievously provoked our Heavenly Father in the first place. Seeking to expose evil of our times by the very goodness and righteousness of our examples. Seeking to be light bringers and so to make the most of every opportunity we might have. Well, you've been very patient with me. Why don't I pray for us as we finish? Father, you um, lay out a glorious truth for us here. It amazes us, Father, that you would care to use us in your gospel, in your glorious work. And you do that, Father, through us as we live for you. Please help us to be Christ-like. Please help us to reflect and echo him. To bring light into dark places in our evil times and lands. Amen. Amen.